Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hello and welcome to Law Pod. My name is Mark Hanna and the subject of today's podcast is on defamation law reform in Northern Ireland. In 2013, England and Wales adopted the Defamation Act, legislation that not only sought to codify a complex body of common law, but to address concerns about the chilling effect that defamation law was seen as having on free speech and to strike a more adequate balance between right to reputation and freedom of expression. In 2016, having considered the implications for Scots law, the Scottish Law Commission proposed similar reform in Scotland. That bill, the Defamation and Malicious Publication Bill, was introduced in the Scottish Parliament in December 2019 and is now in its final amendment stage. The bill broadly reflects the reform adopted in England and Wales. That will leave Northern Ireland as the only part of the UK to yet reform defamation law. In 2013, when the Act was adopted in England and Wales, the then Minister for Finance declined to introduce a debate about reform to the Assembly. This raised concerns about free speech in Northern Ireland and also about the inevitable divergence between defamation law in Northern Ireland and that in England and Wales. Northern Ireland, with its relatively small population, had always relied upon the judgments of England and Wales Appeal Court to develop the law here. By going it alone, Defamation law in Northern Ireland was effectively fossilised in its pre-2013 state. In response to these concerns, the Department of Finance asked Professor Andrew Scott of the London School of Economics to carry out a review of the desirability of reform of defamation law in Northern Ireland. Consultation report to that end was published in 2014, and after the Northern Ireland Law Commission closed in 2015, Professor Scott published a report which recognised the need for reform and recommended legislation that broadly reflected the 2013 Act. Those recommendations for reform have to date not been adopted here. In 2019, the Northern Ireland Department of Finance replied that there was no requirement under either international or domestic law to amend current defamation law in Northern Ireland and argued that the existing common law framework here was enough to protect freedom of speech and ultimately that this was a devolved matter within the competence of the Northern Ireland Assembly. Recently, however, a private member's bill has been introduced in the Assembly by Mike Nesbitt, MLA, proposing the adoption of legislation that would closely reflect the Defamation Act of 2013 that was adopted in England and Wales. To correspond with the current opportunity for reform of the law in Northern Ireland, and to discuss the various issues that defamation law reform presents today in Northern Ireland, We're joined by Andrew Scott, professor at LSE and author of the aforementioned Scott Report, Dahi McSheehy, professor of law and innovation here at Queen's University, Belfast, and Gavin Phillipson, professor of law at Bristol University. In the podcast, we discuss the legislative competence of the Assembly to reform the law in this area now, considering the implications for the reserve matter of data regulation. We talk about the wider implications of online communication the public interest defence and whether Section 4 of the proposed legislation does a good job in protecting that, and the Section 1 requirement of serious harm and discursive remedies. Thanks for listening. I hope you find it useful. Andrew Scott, I'd like to start with you, if I may. You published your report on defamation law in Northern Ireland in 2016. 
There have been significant changes in Northern Ireland since then and society more generally. Would you change anything in your advice to the Northern Ireland Assembly today? And if so, what? Well, first of all, thanks very much for inviting me along today, Mark. Uh, it's very much a pleasure to be here with um, the other members of the, the panel and yourself. Um, I mean, since 2016, um, a number of things have changed. I mean, certainly uh, in terms of our experience, we, we now have seven years of experience of the operation um, of English law of defamation under the, the Defamation Act of 2013. Uh, and in addition, we've seen um, like an array of different analyses being conducted uh, around the world um, where other jurisdictions um, which have similar defamation regimes, um, such as Scotland, Ontario, New South Wales, um, the Irish Republic, um, have considered um, changes to their own defamation laws and um, opened open debates as to whether um, reform should happen and, and perhaps what should happen. Um, coming back to the report that I authored for the Department of Finance in 2016, uh, you may recall that it, it actually proffered um, two alternative courses of action, two, two alternative paths forward. Um, so one of them um, involved introducing a bill in the Assembly in Northern Ireland that would be that would more or less emulate um, the 2013 Act. Um, the other option was to introduce uh, an alternative bill um, that would do that would do more than that. So uh, taking the bill uh, that would more or less emulate the 2013 Act, um, I, I think first first of all, in light of what Mike Nesbitt has proposed at the minute, it's important to say that uh, that first option in 2016 more or less emulated the 2013 or 2013 Act. Um, it wasn't exactly the same. Whereas my understanding is that Mike's bill. Um, is effectively the same as that um, which was put into the statute book in, in England. Um, and as we set out in the 2016 report, um, some of the, the changes that we, we thought were important, um, I, I think, remain significant. So in contrast with Mike's bill, for instance, um, I would like to see some changes in the structure of the honest opinion defence. Um, so one or two of these are you know, small, more or less semantic changes, um, but a, a relatively significant one concerns um, the, the basis upon which uh, a person wanting to utilize the defense um, would be able to, to rest their opinion. Um, and in essence here, we're in, uh, the idea would be that um, a person could rely not, not only upon true or privileged facts, but also upon facts that um, he or she reasonably believed to be true at the, the moment whenever um, the opinion was published. Um, we can talk about that a little bit more as we go we on we go on. Um, other changes relative to to Mike's proposal um, um, or other differences in the 2016 proposal concerned uh, sections five and sections ten, which, if you'll recall, um, relate to um, the position of um, uh, internet intermediaries and other intermediaries. Um, and in that proposal, um, we suggested that what we find in section ten, which is essentially um, uh, the removal of potential liability for internet intermediaries unless conditions were fulfilled. Um, the, the proposal would be that that should actually be just a general um, exclusion from liability, um, which could, in certain circumstances, be um, addressed um, by identifying like a particularly recalcitrant online publisher as a, as a publisher, or, or sorry, online intermediary as a publisher, but in the main would absolve th those types of actors um, from potential defamation liability. Um, I mean, if the plan is to um, closely follow the 2013 Act, um, I personally would like to see those sorts of proposals reintroduced into the bill, which which uh, makes the floor of the, the Assembly. 
So you would like to see, I mean, the, the two things that stand out for you is the Section 3 Honest Opinion Defence. Uh, and as I understand it, you want something a bit more expansive than, than what's proposed. Is that correct? And then secondly, also about what you've said about Section 5 and Section 10. Those are, those are provisions that relate to uh, internet intermediaries. And uh, what what is the purpose in relation to the drop in section five and having a more expansive uh, definition of those in section ten? Uh, well, the, the underpinning policy um, essentially uh, concerns the the potential harms which arise from uh, making intermediaries of this type liable themselves for uh, material that's published by other people. Okay. Material over which they have like no no personal input, perhaps no real knowledge themselves. Okay, um, so um, what then happens whenever such people are made liable is that rather than sort of um, um, uh, engage in some sort of sophisticated contemplation of the rights and wrongs um, of the interest at stake of the the balancing of the the reputational interest against the Article Ten interest, uh, the right to free speech. They simply take material down, uh, which generates a, a profound measure of what some people have called collateral censorship. It's a quick fix for the claimant, but it's not particularly helpful for people who might otherwise be well informed um, by um, the allegations that have been made on matters of potentially very significant public interest. Um, ex- extending the Section Ten idea, you know, and um, uh, extending the the, the uh, exclusion from liability for such people wouldn't mean that there would be no recourse for the claimant. Um, I mean, ultimately. What it would effectively do would be to hand the question back into the, uh, the hands of a judge, um, and um, a claimant would be able very quickly to go to court um, and seek uh, an interim injunction requiring takedown of materials being published, having given the gist of the argument uh, regarding both sides of the, the balancing um, requirement um, to the judge, and have the judge um, determine you know where the the, the balance of, of justice lies. Um, so normally in defamation proceedings, it's very difficult to get um, an injunction at an interim stage to provide for takedown. Um, but in the scenario uh, under a rule called um, the rule in Bonnard and Perryman, uh, essentially what that rule says is that um, if uh, a defendant comes to court and tells the judge that he or she plans to defend the action, then no interim award of an injunction will be made. The big problem in the area of online intermediaries is that usually um, the um the primary author or publisher is anonymous. Okay, so in these circumstances, that person would have to, if you um, effectively out themselves and come forward to the court to make an argument to the judge that the material should stay up, um, and only by doing so would they be able to um, uh, frustrate the intentions of the claimant. Okay, so so that that effectively places the heat back onto the original publisher rather than the um, the, the intermediary who has no particular stake in, in the matter. Um, so, so what you're suggesting then is, you know, rather than uh, enacting this provision five, which is about uh, the liability of website operators, just rely on that common law rule. Uh, and that, in effect, means that, you know, you, you fall back to this default position that, you know, th- this thing will sort itself out and you, ha- you don't have to get into the whole litigation of issues in order to get things removed from the Internet, which, which people complain about. Because most of the time people won't defend that. Is, is that 
is that the 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 purpose there? That, that's essentially the idea. And if we're, if we're thinking about Section Five and emulating it, we need to have a look across the water and see what actually has happened in England. Um, so regulations have been passed under Section Five, which would would um, bring it into effect. But if essentially nobody is utilising those, so everyone um, who's engaged in this area, all of the internet internet uh, intermediaries that that uh, might be called upon to take material down, are falling back back upon um, pre existing common law and statutory rules, um, in part as derived from EU law. Um, and uh, acting there under, you know, which is effectively notice and takedown regimes, which aren't a, a tremendous advance on, um, uh, or, which don't necessarily address the sorts of concerns about collateral censorship that that, um, that concerned us in the first place, I think. Well, I noticed it's interesting because Scotland, you know, adopted a similar approach to your recommendation and they don't have the the Section 5 uh, uh reference to the explicit reference to um, operators of websites and there's an interesting dimension here and I'm not sure it was ever your intention but there's an interesting dimension here I think in light of the changes uh, or the challenges rather that uh, the bill as it's in its current form it has received in the Northern Ireland Assembly and that's a question I had for you Dahi about one of the things that's come back uh, and, and feedback to Mike Nesbitt is uh, this idea that the Assembly doesn't have legislative competence um, for uh, this kind of li- libel law reform any longer because it touches on reserve matters. Can you explain what, that's, what that is exactly? What are these reserve matters and how that might be an issue for a devolved Assembly that hopes to, to enact some reform of this area of defamation law? Well, this is something where the the common view across London and Belfast for many years now has been that um, defamation reform falls within the legislative competence of the Northern Ireland Assembly. Um, there's been very little controversy uh, about that at, at any stage. And so any argument now that there's an issue is much more likely to relate to one or more components of a bill rather than the bill as a whole. Now, in terms of what those components might be, um, the, the more general provisions found in Section 10 of the 2013 uh, Act, um, in my mind, will be relatively easy to justify in terms of the powers of the Assembly. Um, Although there are various differences between the devolution settlements, the Scottish Law Commission has done part of this work already because it's equivalent of the the provisions in um, Section 10, which by and large have made their way into um, into the bill that the Scottish Parliament has just completed its uh, consideration of. Um, there are a number of different bases in which they would fall within the competence of the Scottish Parliament, and certainly at least one of them would also be uh, would have a parallel in in Northern Ireland. Section 5 of the 2013 Act is probably a more difficult case um, because it wasn't part of the Scottish proposal. Neither the Scottish Law Commission nor the Scottish Parliament gave any significant attention to legislative competence and the provisions of section 5 of the 2013 act are more can be more explicitly categorized as re- as regulating internet services and internet services are one of those areas where both in respect of Scotland and Northern Ireland um legislative competence is in general terms um, reserved to uh, to Westminster. And so the challenge for the Northern Ireland Assembly now will first be to work out what the problem is 
um, and we would await information from the speaker on that. Um, then the extent to which the bill, as proposed, could be amended with that in mind, or because, again, of the unique, unique way in which the Northern Ireland Assembly operates, it is possible, um, which wasn't actually possible in the Scottish case, to get a particular form of Secretary of State consent in order to allow the, the bill to be considered. So, One must sorry, also... What, what... Why is that not possible for for Scotland to to get the Secretary of State's consent? I mean, my understanding is that the the issue here is that these are reserved matters for both uh, the Scottish Parliament and the Northern Irish Assembly is regulation in terms of uh, wireless communication and data regulation and things like that. And the, the idea is that they're caught by this defamation law reform. Scotland has said that really this is not an issue. It doesn't really go to the heart of those reserve matters and therefore we're sidestepping it. Why was it not an issue or, uh, for, for Scotland to, to get that uh, Secretary of State consent for that? Well, and it would two, be for Northern Ireland. Two reasons. First of all, Scotland didn't, pr didn't propose any equivalent of Section 5, so the matter doesn't arise. And Section 10 only touches upon internet services in a very tangential way. And that was the final view of the Scottish Law Commission and was broadly unchallenged as the bill made its way to the Scottish Parliament. Secondly, because Northern Ireland has a tripartite um, uh, separation or um, outlining of powers between transferred, reserved and accepted, um, Scotland simply has uh, reserved and, in essence, not reserved. Um, there are some sort of procedural ways in which matters that in Northern Ireland are designated in the middle category of reserved can still be legislated on by um, by Stormont. So, it could, so in that sense, there might be a, a political way out. And the reason I highlight it here is because it has been the consistent position of the UK government that it would not legislate in respect of defamation because it was within the legislative competence of the Assembly. Now, if it turns out that a minor aspect of that legislation actually falls within Westminster powers, um, and still the UK government would prefer the matter to be dealt with lock, stock and barrel in the Assembly, then there is a way in which that could happen. But of course, the even easier way um, is to abandon any attempt to do Section 5 in Northern Ireland, um, proceed on the basis of the Scottish experience, and in my view, the much easier argument regarding legislative competence. Now, I'm sure we'll go on and continue our discussion around whether an equivalent of Section 5 in Northern Ireland would be a good idea. Um, I agree that it should not be part of the Northern Irish Bill, um, but you know, we, we, we may explore that further. Well, that was the question was, you know, is one of, I'm not sure if that's what you had in contemplation, Andrew, that you foresaw that this difficulty, but one of the other thing that comes out of dropping that section five and having this more expansive uh, provision in section 10 is that it maybe sidesteps this more constitutional issue about what is reserve matter and what is the legislative competence here in that sense. Is, is that correct then that that is maybe what the effect of dropping Section 5 would have here. So the essential point, I suppose, is that um, a data protection law will also apply in this area. You know, And so what, we're, what we'd be contemplating if we did introduce measures under defamation reform would be two different systems of law applying to the same type of conduct. And it would be left in the hands of a claimant to decide you know, which way um, they prefer to, to proceed, perhaps going both ways forward. Um, under um, the proposal which was in the 2015 Act, 
Um, I mean, this is in part sidestepped. It leaves the terrain somewhat free uh, to data protection law. But yet, um, as we've discussed already, you know, it, it still leaves the door open uh, to a claimant to seek um, a swift um, order from a court to secure takedown under defamation law. I mean, I, I do find it interesting that there's a question here about competence, um, you know, precisely because, um, you know, we've seen Scotland legislate. Um, we, we have defamation law, which applies in this area in England, um, while also having data protection law, which applies to the same conduct. And, and presumably all we would be thinking about would be the emulation of a scheme, you know, which is, is pretty much already in place in another one of the, the UK jurisdictions. What, what the Scottish have done is is more or less what was prescribed in the 2016 Act. Um, now, there is still a potential overlap, as, as Dahi has suggested, because there was a sort of um, a residual provision whereby it would be open to a minister to to redesignate an internet intermediary um, as a publisher and thereby bring them back within the framework of defamation law if there were there were circumstances which which motivated that. So to that extent, you would still be talking about at least the potential for an overlap. I suppose what I'm saying more broadly is I don't think that the overlap is actually problematic in the first place. You, know? you don't think right because you could just take the the version that you'd suggested in originally in terms of dropping section five and, and that that sidesteps it to some extent and it, it doesn't really engage that issue well i mean i i think that the, if you had an equivalent to section five then you would be very definitely into the territory of having two developed regimes which apply to the same the same conduct um the, my proposal the scottish proposal effectively limits the potential for overlap there although it doesn't eradicate it altogether um uh I think that that's a preferable approach, um, but what what we have to recognise is that the, the sort of duplication already exists in England, and so if, as a matter of competence, it's possible for you know the Westminster Parliament acting just for England and Wales to do that, then it would stand to reason that the same thing could happen here, you know. But again, I'm not advocating it happens. I'm, I'm su- suggesting that there's a better way forward, um, but I don't see any sort of area of uh, issue of competence if it was the desire of the Assembly actively to do that. You know? I think there's also the divergence across the United Kingdom, not strictly in terms of legislative competence, but in terms of the policy goals. I think we're already seeing that with the legislation that's just been adopted in Scotland. Um, In my view, the... Um, the provisions in respect of internet intermediaries that emerge from the Scottish legislation in the new sections three and four of that bill are, are considerably more fit for the decade we're now in than the 2013 Act provisions in Section 5 and Section 10. They're certainly not perfect, and indeed, as, as has already been said, um, the ability of ministers by secondary legislation to go back and have another go at who is a publisher, who is not a publisher, etc., is potentially quite far-reaching. But again, that's the compromise uh, that, that the Scottish um, Parliament adopted. I mean, the suggestions made by Andrew Scott for Northern Ireland in terms of an enhanced version of Section 10 rather than Section 5 and Section 10 um, are very much reflected in the Scottish Bill. In fact, the Scottish Bill pushes them even further again in terms of the ability to go back and and change it. So we're already seeing, uh, purely in policy terms, a different approach to internet intermediaries being taken in Scotland. So once the competence issues are resolved, and I'd be confident that they that they would be, Northern Ireland even faces a choice there whether to go down the Scottish road or the English road. Um, I think the Scottish road is 
potentially quite likely, not least because Andrew Scott's work informed it. And I would share the view that Section 5 of the English legislation um, has had virtually no impact. Um, it, it's only comprehensible with very detailed regulations, and that will be a question for the Northern Ireland Bill as well. If you're going to have a debate about adopting Section 5, then you also need to debate the regulations, because that took a, quite, a number, a, quite a number of months after the 2013 Act and set out in a lot of detail how this would actually have a practical effect on the operator of a social media site or a bulletin board or whatever the case um, may be. It's not being used, and it has zero impact on privacy, on harassment, on data protection, on a whole bunch of other areas. So it, it created a very detailed and very specific defense that only works for particular types of websites, only works in defamation, and only works in England and Wales. And so the, the, the question that I would ask in the Northern Irish context is whether following that model duplicating that model is the right thing to do or is this actually an opportunity as was seized by Scotland and as was outlined by Andrew Scott and as is being now considered in Ontario and other jurisdictions to think about the balance of power and the incentives and the way of dealing with um, internet communications because section 5 was a product of its time it was a response to an argument that it was very hard for the operators of particular websites to know what to do um, and it drew a line between sort of uh, claimed an anonymous speech and tried to create a set of incentives um, to uh, favour speech that could have a name associated with it and allow proceedings to continue. But it hasn't worked. And that's justifiable from the point of view of the UK Parliament um, in the early part of the previous decade. But the Northern Ireland Assembly is looking 10 years later on and gets to make up its own mind on this. Right. And I mean, so Scotland offers a way forward there in, in that respect. And uh, I mean, but there's there's one other question there is, you know, what you said is section four of the Scottish bill, which suggests that, as you as you stated there, that the ministers can go back and they can create secondary legislation in order to make further definitions in relation to intermediaries. You don't see that. Is that something that Northern Ireland should emulate? Is that going too far? I think it's a very interesting proposal, and I understand why it's in the Scottish legislation, because the, the way in which the Scottish Law Commission and Parliament took the core of Section 10 of the 2013 Act and expanded it to make it even harder to bring an action against an internet intermediary, um, that then quite reasonably faces the counter-argument that you've now made it um, too easy for the intermediary to do nothing. Um, and indeed, Section 4 of the Scottish legislation you know, is explicitly justified as saying, look, if this turns out to be a big problem, if we have gone too far in the speech direction and created a type of impunity for powerful social media operators or particular contexts, then um, they can be brought back into the picture, albeit with defences and so on. Uh, and that's that, That's the trade-off that's faced here. This is why, for instance, although many have suggested it over the years, um, 
No legislator in the UK has ever gone down the categorical immunity from defamation that we see, for instance, in the Communications Decency Act in the United States of saying to the to the host in particular, you know, you can throw those letters in the bin because the consequences of that from the point of view of reputation and the protection of individuals was a factor. And that certainly arose in the committee debates in Scotland that on one hand, you try to make it to to make it easier for operators to defend speech and to uh, to provide a platform for the views of others, but you still reserve this idea that if there is abuse, if there is a problem, that you would still be able to offer some protection of reputation. And that's my understanding of how Section Three and Section Four in Scotland work together. Again, not saying it's perfect, but it's something that the Northern Ireland Assembly should give particularly good consideration to, especially in a time of discussion around online harms around the uh, the power of intermediaries, as has worked out in the United States over the last couple of months in terms of account deletion and the like. So it's a big question that the Assembly will need to face, and it will need to face it from a 2021 perspective rather than a 2013 perspective. Yeah. And I mean, I, I asked the question, you know, what's changed since 2016? And immediately we come to this issue about, you know, the growth of online communication and, and the challenges that that presents. And, and you know, immediately you come to even to this issue of legislative competence. But let me ask you, Dahi, I mean, more generally, what do you see as the issues arising from the growth of online communication and the technology since 2013, uh, when it was really considered in England and Wales? Uh, what, what are the issues now that any legislature, and particularly Northern Ireland, uh, needs to contemplate as, as they consider reform of, of defamation law? The issues are still there in terms of the ability of platforms to moderate, for instance, how they apply their own terms and conditions, how responsive they are to complaints. And bearing in mind that by now, many of the large platforms have developed quite elaborate systems for dealing with complaints, reporting mechanisms, flagging, use of automation and so on. So there's a lot more scholarship now on how moderation works in practice and what types of things are taken down or are not taken down. I mean, it doesn't address that fundamental structural issue that the incentives are still there to take it down um, if there's any doubt at all because there's very little for platforms to gain from leaving things up uh, other than their image as defenders of speech uh, or their um, their desire you know to uh, to attract users on the grounds that they won't have their stuff taken down straight away. But we still see great investment by social media platforms in particular in enhanced forms of moderation. Um, We also see, of course, again, over the course of a decade, the continued success of different forms of social media, not just the bigger names as as was then of Facebook, etc., but of newer platforms um, such as TikTok, which are audiovisually rich, which deal with different types of material, which again see um, an overwhelming volume of content where pre-moderation is not possible. And we've also seen, as I hinted at earlier, um, discussions around what the responsibilities of these platforms are. So one of the criticisms leveled at social media operators in the US was that they were being judge, jury and executioner when it comes to speech, that they were protected against liability, but could also decide to favour or disfavour particular political speech without any realistic recourse from those who are penalised by it in, um, in that way. So, you know, the importance of that decision to uh, to leave up, to take down, to stay down, and so on, has become 
uh, a subject of great emphasis. And we see, for instance, at European Union level, a lot of work going on around harmful online speech, around the responsibilities, around setting targets for things like how quick hate speech is removed. So the kind of the spotlight is upon um, operators of websites more so than it would have been at the time of the 2013 legislation where the, the clearer lobbying and the clearer argument was, look, give these guys a break. All they're doing is providing opportunities for speech. Um, perhaps perhaps our optimism maybe has changed a little. Um, there's a maybe a more jaundiced view on the, the power exercised by these bodies as well as how difficult it is to have material removed. But I would also agree with what Andrew Scott has said around the timeliness here, because when Ontario started to look at this, it looked at no notice and takedown models from around the world, but fundamentally, um, ways of speeding up disputes in relation to online material will have much more of an impact than kind of carefully balancing the liability or the defences that might be available much further down the line. Having ways in which orders can be issued to have material uh, taken down, having rapid resolution, low cost resolution of disputes is much more significant for internet communications than it is for other areas of communications and media. And how does that you know, correlate with this view that we often get presented to us in the media that, you know, social media giants and indeed they're, they're regulating uh, speech themselves now in terms of what they deem to be fake news and things like that, you know, the immense power that they have, you know, that we don't typically, one of the changes that we see is we don't typically see, see them as being, a, 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 you know, these people that we got to give these guys a break. These are people with, with a massive power and with mad, massive public responsibility in terms of speech now. But it's possible that both of these points can be true. These can be intermediaries vested with great power and um, responsibility, but also the law is a mess. I mean, Andrew Scott has described the range of available defamation defences that an intermediary can avail of as an unwholesome layer cake. I've described the picture looking horizontally across defamation, privacy, intellectual property and data protection as a fragmentation of liability. And so there's uncertainty, there's risk. And um, in terms of what the legal system is doing, um, it creates incentives to remove material when somebody is shouting loud about it, when it looks like this is going to be difficult, when there's kind of tacit political pressure to be doing something. And again, you know, when I presented on this, I could have can go through multiple speeches, threats, suggestions that social media should be doing more about this in the absence of clear legislation. And so again, oh, the overwhelming direction of travel has been towards a responsibility driven agenda. So in the face of a responsibility agenda and a lack of certainty as to what defences arise, um, in many cases, the operator of a website will take stuff down. They may not be taking the right stuff down. So this is often the problem. They may be taking it down on a basis of risk or on a basis of, um, of perceived importance politically or otherwise, uh, rather than actually thinking about harm in any serious way. The scale of the material and the way in which moderation operates suggests that this is not a careful calibration of harm, but more a response to a series of, of pressures and incentives. Let me ask you, uh, Gavin Phillipson, was that also your impression in 2013 when uh, when the UK Parliament was considering reform here that, that they should give these guys a break and in, in, internet intermediaries uh, and this idea that maybe you know we should still give them a break in any sort of fashion and legislation should be drafted uh, to that end. I mean, 
I think I saw section five. I mean, I, I haven't kept up with how it's been. If it, if it turns out it's it's kind of been useless in practice, then fine. I thought it, I thought at the time it seemed an, a reasonable attempt to try and strike a balance between kind of you know two extremes. You've got the U.S. extreme model at one end, which is basically a completely free press for intermediaries, even when they're notified that they're carrying seriously illegal content. That CDA two thirty that, that Donald Trump likes for the wrong dislikes for the wrong reasons. There's very good reasons to dislike section two thirty, which are not the ones that Trump has. Um, so that's the kind of extreme free market, free pass, essentially. Um, and on the one hand, a kind of strict old-fashioned model that would basically, you know, the, the, at the most extreme end, would treat an intermediary as a publisher. Um, so it's an attempt to basically find some middle ground, which is broadly represented also by the e-commerce directive, that essentially once notified of, of, of potentially unlawful content, then you may come under some duty to remove it, or as Section 5 gives the other option of, of basically allowing allowing the complainant to, to sue the, the poster directly, which I can imagine will, will, will nearly, well, very often be impractical. So I can sort of see why that, why that provision hasn't really worked. But I kind of liked it in principle, um, but I would defer to these guys in terms of if it has if it hasn't worked out in practice, um, I would understand why. But I mean, that some kind of middle ground has to be found, I think, both for the purposes of, of um, the e-commerce directive, which I assume is, is EU-retained law and still therefore sets our basic standard, and also as far as Strasbourg is concerned, um, and balancing Articles 8 and 10, which would not permit us to have anything like, uh, I don't think anyone's suggesting it, but anything like CDA 230, for example, or indeed, or indeed a very strict liability of, of intermediaries. Although, if anything, I think Strasbourg has, has erred a little bit on the side of, of um, being over overprotective, I think an underprotective perhaps of intermediary free speech, I would think, from the case law. But. Okay. Well, one of the things that's, that's certainly happened with uh, the growth of online communication is an explosion of what you might call low-value speech, and it's certainly made it more accessible for, for people to, to publish things and publish them to a wide audience. And and that relates to a question I have, you know, about where public interest and what we might call more high value speech fits into this. And that's a question I have for you, Gavin. I want to talk about free speech and public interest reporting because I think uh, in this in this whole complex milieu that that we find ourselves now in, that public interest speech is something of a, a baby in the bathwater. Uh, and Northern Ireland is a post-conflict society uh, with power sharing and political representation along sectarian lines. And with that, it depends a lot on government and public power. And as we saw with Brexit, that that's a very uh, broad basis of a political framework. And then at the same time, you know, we have a relatively small and modestly resourced media sector. The question for you is, you know, in this whole complex milieu we find ourselves in now with online communication, what kind of protection in law should we expect of free speech and debate on matters of public interest? And is reform necessary to protect that? I don't think it's completely necessary. I think I think the common law had kind of got to a point where it was striking a reasonable balance, but I think that legislation can be very valuable in giving a much more clear and explicit and easily understood um, uh, affirmation to journalists in particular of, of the protections that they have rather than expecting them to kind of, well, which they obviously won't actually read the case law, but, you know, read some simplified guide to the case law, which is the best that they'll get. And we, we were discussing on email, you, you know, that, 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 that um, lawyers acting for media outputs have found that Section 4 has made, you know, a bigger difference than I would have expected 
it would have done just looking at the law. And, and that possibly is its kind of communicative value that, you know, having it set out clearly in legislation that, that then itself attracts, you know, a lot of publicity and debate just means that everyone is kind of clearer, even if the change to the law is not that significant, which I didn't think Section 4 was, although I think the case law has perhaps meant, it, you know, the, the latest case law, Seraphin in particular, from the Supreme Court has has meant that it's it's probably a more relaxed standard, I think, than 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 it could have been interpreted as. But in terms of public interest, on in relation to sort of you know potentially defamatory speech, I do not think Section Four is a good model, and I wouldn't recommend that it be used. I think the original draft of Section Four, which is I think much closer to the kind of Commonwealth consensus, particularly in, the, in say the Canadian Supreme Court decision in Grant and Torstar, so the essence of it is. Um, responsible communication on a matter of public interest, which was kind of what the original draft of the of the um, of section four was. Um, I just went back to, to check it out. So the original the original draft of it was that um, the statement complained of to qualify for the defence would formed part of a statement on a matter of public interest and the defendant acted responsibly in publishing the statement complained of. And then the original draft of Section 4 had a kind of checklist that looked very much like Reynolds. And I understand the issues with checklists and with and with courts treating them as, you know, with treating them as kind of 10 hurdles that have to be overcome and being and too rigid about them. And, and I think, you know, I, I'm sort of half persuaded by that. But I do not think that removing the wording of the defendant having to act responsibly in terms of making, you know, basic checks, making a reasonable attempt to verify seriously defamatory allegations before publishing them is a good idea. And I note with concern that the Supreme Court in Seraphin has taken quite seriously the removal of of, of um, references to uh, acting responsibly and says that because Parliament deliberately chose to remove those words, that the courts can't use them anymore. And, and um, the paragraph that you pointed out to me from, from Seraphin, where the Supreme Court says essentially that, that references to acting responsibly should be avoided. So what matters is, is the defendant's belief that they have acted in the public interest in publishing the material, which also I just think an, an, uh, adds an unnecessary layer of complexity. What we want is we do want protection for statements that turn out to be false, provided that because if, if they're on, on matters of public importance, because for one thing, they may be true, and it just may be that we can't prove them true in court, as, as some of the cases revolve around, where in fact, the allegation probably is true, but the evidence just can't be found or can't be adduced in court. Or it may be that it was a very important matter, and that it was justified in publishing it, even though it turned out not to be true, because it because the because the you know, the paper had made reasonably, you know, had made reasonable attempts to verify it at the time. And I don't think they should be punished if it turns out that they got that wrong. Although a good compromise would be, which obviously Andrew's talked a lot about, um, to have a, a discursive remedy in that case. In other words, that they shouldn't be liable in damages. But if the matter turns out to be false and is damaging, but it was, you know, seen as in the public interest to publish it, then they should while benefiting from the defense, they should benefit from the defense only if they acknowledge in their in their publication that actually the, the allegation turned out to be to be false which was which again was 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 there was much talk about this and this was in an early draft of what became section 4 of the defamation act but then disappeared and i don't really know why it why it disappeared unless it was just pressure from the media that didn't that didn't obviously want it so 
Essentially, I think I think when you're talking about defamation, those two elements that the topic is a matter of genuine public interest, and I think you know there's plenty of there's plenty of definitions in in, in press codes around of kind of non-exhaustive lists of matters that that are on the public interest. Um, I don't think you can define the public interest in statute, or at least certainly not exhaustively. You know, you, you can you can you can you can, you know you can give non-exhaustive, quite short definitions, and really it'll come down to what the courts make of them. But I do think those twin elements that the the, the topic or matter or substance of it is genuinely of public interest, and that there is um, you know a reasonable attempt at verifying the allegations. And it may be that Section Four kind of more or less sort of says that, but I just think couching it all in terms of the defendant's belief that they were acting in the public interest, or the defendant's reasonable belief that they were acting in the public interest is just is just a really strange and convoluted and unnecessary way of getting there. Why not simply say that they, they need to have acted responsibly and that that is assessed, you know, with due regard for editorial, uh, you know, for, for editorial discretion and with the pressure of, of you know, modern newsrooms and all the rest of it. So there's some deference from the courts in, in deciding that point, and that should be said in the statute as Section 4 does. But I just don't think the wording that Section 4 ended up is is, is very helpful, though, you know, I'm glad to hear if it sort of made more difference to the, to the press in a good way than, than, than perhaps Perhaps we thought it would, but I just don't think that particular form of wording is a helpful way of capturing um, the responsible journalism part of that defence, which is a kind of common defence throughout the Commonwealth. That, you know, responsible publication on a matter of public interest. I don't. I wouldn't use the wording of Section Four as it ended up. Well, the, what what is communicated by journalists sometimes is that Section Four is a psychological value. You know, it's a statement. It's a clear codification of public interest defence, and what we had in Reynolds before that. That was uh, this. It was open to judicial ambiguity, and it had this non-exhaustive checklist. Um, but when you look at Section Four, and as you say, you know they did drop this uh, uh, this uh, provision about it being responsible. But what it does have is you know the stipulation that it has to be a statement of public interest, as vague as that is, and then that the, the defendant acted reasonably in uh, in publishing the statement, and that you know when you look at the case law around that. Part four one b, you know, it's quite a, a a high standard still, you know, in terms of it's an objective and a subjective test, you know, whether or not there was a belief and whether or not there was a reasonable belief. I mean, what we don't have is, you know, this is not approaching like a New York Times and Sullivan type of 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 standard. You know, we're not going that far. And the question is, you know, does it not still, if you look at section four, it still prov- you know provides quite. A, a high standard for publishers to overcome, in a sense, when they're publishing those kind of stories and public interest stories and what they claim to be public interest stories. I mean, if it is a high standard, that's only because the courts are reading that into it. All it says is the defendant has to reason. It doesn't say the defendant has to act reasonably. It says the defendant has to reasonably believe that publishing the statement is in the public interest. And as Andrew and others, and, and, and you know, Alison Mullis and others pointed out at the time, in principle, that that could be. You could have that reasonable belief just in the sheer importance of the topic, and could think, well, we're really not that sure whether it's true or not. But this is just such a big topic; we just thought we had to get it out there. That could be a reasonable belief. It was in the public interest. So you have to kind of heavily gloss that reasonable belief and read back in the requirement of kind of responsible, you know, responsible journalism of making reasonable attempts to verify in order to make it a reasonably high standard. So if Section 4 has that, that's only because the courts are busy still kind of reading it with a heavy gloss of sort of Reynolds, although good that they've, you know, adopted the overly rigid prescriptive 
approach to the to the Reynolds factors, and it may be that you don't want to list them in the statute because that makes it too rigid. But essentially, that that particular wording, where that very indirect, convoluted way, you have to sort of read in responsible journalism if that's what you want, which you sort of we know that you do need that to satisfy Article Eight of the Convention. So it, it's sort of going to have to be read back in. So in that way, if you know if you know the judges are going to do that, why not try and set it out yourself? I mean, the whole purpose, as you said, Mark, you know, the, the reason why journalists find this helpful is because it's there in kind of plain black and white in in the legislation the trouble with this is it doesn't it means a lot more than it says so uh, why not just make it mean what you want it to mean why not just set it out clearly like like grant and Torstar, for example where you've got two requirements first the publication must be on a matter of public interest second the defendant must show that publication responsible in that he or she was reasonably diligent in trying to verify the allegations I mean, that seems to me to be just much clearer and it's there on the page instead of this kind of convoluted, indirect way that you have to kind of gloss what Section 4 actually says with, oh, well, of course, what that really means is you can only have that reasonable belief that it's in the public interest if, in fact, you've, you've acted reasonably responsibly. I just, I just think that's a, not a good way of getting what you want, getting where you want to get to. Well, the difference, as we saw in the judgment of Sarah Finn, was really that there's, there is some kind of distinction between what responsibility entails and what reasonableness entails and and there has to be some kind of editorial alliance as it yeah, comes in section which... four four I, I'm, I'm just wondering andrew what's your take now on section four because in the recommendations in, in 2016 you're pretty much in favor of section four do you still see it as being not problematic or do you see any issues with it Okay, there are a number of different sort of ways into this conversation, I think. I mean, one thing um, just to, to begin with, if we look at um, what's um, been legislated in New South Wales, um, what they have done is also put Reynolds onto a statutory footing. But in contrast to what we've seen in um, in England and Wales, um, they have gone through the process of identifying you know, Reynolds-type factors and listed them explicitly. Now, my reading of that was that the, that the Australian um, legislators, when... Um, trying to bring Reynolds onto a statutory footing, we're obliged to, to include that listing because they don't have the equivalent of um, the Article 8, Article 10 balance in the constitutional background. Um, for my money, um, the Section 4 is to be read um, as, as the equivalent of Reynolds um, and not something more like New York Times and Sullivan. Um, certainly, judges uh, Mark Warby, the Court of Appeal in, in Seraphim, both emphasised the idea that that, that that was the appropriate reading. Where there tends to have been a bit more of a sort of uh, nuance introduced in the interpretation of Section 4 concerns um, publishers who were not sort of mainstream media. Um, and in those regards, you know, there's been a, a slight extension and a slight amelioration of the strictness of of, um, of uh, Reynolds as read through the, the, um, the terms of Section 4. I mean, I'd like to come back to a couple of things that, that um, both of you have said there about the, the, the availability and desirability of Section 4 from a journalist's perspective. I, I, I mean, I'm not a journalist, but I'd imagine that it, it's helpful to have something like Section 4 setting out the, the basic expectations and allowing journalists and the editors to understand like when they'll be able to proceed and when they really shouldn't proceed. But I think it needs to be recognised that whenever you get into legal um, action, whenever you're in, involved in litigation, Section 4 really, and Reynolds in the past, really doesn't serve the journalists very well because all of a sudden you're shifting away from a focus upon you know, the veracity and accuracy of what has been published and the significance, perhaps, of the allegations that have been made. And everything then then refocuses upon journalistic conduct, you know. 
So the the pressure being brought to bear upon the media publisher at that stage um, must be enormous. You know, you're, you're uh, certainly the way the, the defence was interpreted by um, some English judges required such um, a sort of um, per- perfect performance that it was um, very rare that actually Section Four um, was was effective in defending journalism. You know, so um, I mean, the whole yeah, I agree. sorry, I agree with that. Yeah, okay. but but can I just put to that? You know that. Yes, that might be the case, but it's in a sense it's getting lost in the legal abstraction of this, and and you know it may be the fact, and from what we've heard, and there's different accounts, but it may be the fact that just codifying you know a Reynolds type defence and simplifying it and putting boundaries around it the way that Section Four does, maybe not perfectly, but that has that psychological impact, and it means that cases don't even get to court because journalists feel more confident in publishing things and also claimants feel a little less confident in bringing claims against those yeah i'm I'm sure that is the case and if we if we draw the sort of analogy with data protection law you know where sort of proper mainstream journalism uh which is met with a complaint under data protection law which is increasingly the case alongside defamation in those contexts um mainstream publishers have found it very easy to simply refer to the public interest defense available um, in that context to to dissuade further action um the main point I suppose I would like to make is is that you know ultimately um, I think as Dahi has said earlier on with regard to um, internet intermediaries and internet publication, um, we need to think a little bit more about you know the, the complexity and the um, uh, what's the right word uh, the the overextended nature of the legal process um, that that becomes um, in, in which people come embroiled here because you know, if you if you involve yourself in a a defamation action, you're, you may well find yourself fighting that defamation action for, you know, several months, if not years, you know, and very often, um, you know, the, the importance of the issue is just, you know, the importance of the journalism is just completely out the window and completely being ignored. Um, now, wouldn't it be preferable if some means could be devised in order to ensure that most disputes, and, and by the way, most disputes are, are based not upon necessarily, you know, the, um, the poignancy of what has been published, but about sort of picking around the edges of what had been published, you know, and people suggesting, well, you said X, Y, and Z about me, but actually th- that's not true. And then the response is, well, we didn't actually say that about you. We, we only meant to say Y or Z, you know, and we think that probably is true, you know. So we're, 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 we're sort of transposing like a, a public sphere d- dispute, you know, from the public sphere into a courtroom where it becomes reified and expands massively in terms of the, the, the time and resource that it takes to, to resolve. Um, it might be preferable if we could find means of quickly, um, you know, by providing a legal framework within which this could happen, but quickly re- resolving disputes um, and leaving only those disputes which were absolutely intractable, where some very straightforward black and white allegation has been made, which the, the claimant contends simply is not true, you know, and where the impact on reputation is so significant that it really must go through a legal process in order to um, to, to reach a, an adequate resolution, and perhaps punishment for the publisher. You know? Well, this brings me to something I, I also wanted to ask you about, and it's your recommendation of more discursive remedies um, that was put forward in, in the 2016 report. Can you tell us a little bit about that and the recommendations that were there and whether or not you still see those as viable? And is that the answer that you're, you're grasping towards here? Um, well, again, there, there are sort of layers in this discussion. Um, I mean, we've seen the operation of a discursive remedy very recently in the, the context of Meghan Markle's privacy action against um, 
the mail uh, online, um, albeit that this was an action brought, uh, at least in this respect, in copyright. I mean, the judge um, found it in her favour and is compelling mail online. I mean, I think obviously this is subject to, to, to appeal, although the, the first instance judge has denied their right to appeal. Um, he's compelling them to put a, a front page um, uh, recognition, if you like, of the fact that her copyright was breached. And for that message to be conveyed for a period of time, from recollection, I think it was seven days on their online sources. So that's a discursive remedy, if you want, um, an apology or correction or clarification of what has, has actually happened. Now, the point- and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in the mail on Sunday uh, yeah. and what form that takes. But yeah. Well, sure. Look, I mean, the, the other thing to say is that in, in accordance with their own standards, you know, the editor's code of practice, newspapers by and large are committed to correcting you know, significant error as soon as they come across it, whether they actually do it or not, or whether they do it adequately from the perspective of the, the complainant is a different matter altogether. Um, and and this, this, this sort of, um, uh, the availability of this type of remedy in co- copyright is not an entirely new thing. The, the point I was going to make about it um, is that, you know, the 2013 Act um, expands upon discursive remedies, you know, makes them, them certain types of remedies more available, but they all come into play at the end of the, the litigation. You know, if you win your case, then you get the remedy. And that, that's a good thing in its own right, but it doesn't, um, it doesn't sort of speak to this sort of desirability of, you know, quick resolution, um, you know, early circumvention of the legal process or short-circuiting of the, um, uh, the, the expanded nature of, um, of the proceedings, you know. Um, what was proposed in the, the, the first bill, Appendix 1, I think it was, in the 2016 Act, was a sort of a slightly more nuanced idea. I mean, what it would do would be um, profoundly to encourage very swift retraction and correction, uh, where what was published was ambiguous. Okay, so most of the time, a journalist will will have a specific allegation they want to make, um, and they'll they'll put it down, and it will be easily interpretable. But but sometimes what is said, I mean, particularly if you're thinking about longer form journalism or even criticisms which might appear in you know, one-hour um, broadcast specials or even in book form, is that you get sort of multiple layers of allegations and com- complexity of, of assertion being introduced. So um, where somebody comes forward with a complaint, the idea would be that the first thing that they would seek to do would be to to clarify the nature of the allegations that were being made. And where ambiguity um, generated misunderstanding, corrections or retractions of um, the ambiguous meanings the unintended ambiguous meanings could quickly be um, entered into the public domain. And everyone would know from the outset, perhaps within seven days, that the um, the allegation which the claimant has perceived as being there was not true. Okay? But by the way, if the journalist did have another point which should be um, dealt with by the claimant um, or maybe should affect the reputation in the public sphere, that can still be sued upon. Okay, so you know we, we move very quickly in the direction of clarifying the nature of the dispute. Okay, but we do that without having to go through the rigmarole of preliminary hearings in 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 the high court. You know, uh, which is extremely costly. Um, I mean, there are now limits which have been put upon preliminary hearings and the tra- determination of meaning, but the limits are thirty thousand pounds per side. You know, um, we're we're told that this is a very swift process, but in fact, on the basis of some research I've conducted recently, um, it's more like six hundred days on average to get a court-determined meaning um, of the publication that was originally causing the harm. So the, the alternative available when you retract or, or correct is to clarify the dispute and to do it more or less immediately. Um, and that, that's easily facilitated you know, by um, putting um, the sorts of corrections or attractions that the mail is now being compelled to do at the end of the process, putting them in the same sorts of locations on websites. Um, um, 
you know, uh, process to which then, you know, a claimant can refer anybody who wants to, to, um, uh, to continue to believe in the, the alleged falsehood or the ambiguous um, treatment, you know. So th- that's, um, that, that to me seems to be the type of resolution that we need to be thinking about much more than, than revising, um, you know, perceived nuances in, in uh, defamation defences. You know, they remain for the case where, you know, I'm alleging that something is true and you're contending that it's false, and we really need to get down to the, the, the nuts and bolts of the evidence to determine that. But by and large, you know, most cases would just be uh, determined swiftly and to the uh, satisfaction of all parties concerned. I mean, one of the things that really came out there is if you, and I'm quoting you, Gavin, is if you're going to legislate, you have to get it right. And then what Dahi's saying, you know, it's not completely possible maybe to get it right. And this is something that we see in defamation law a lot is, you know, there's it's a very fine balance between the right to reputation, right to freedom of expression. And it's, it's, it's very hard to strike that balance. And we perhaps have to accept some imperfection here. Um, but the question keeps coming back to, you know, is it legitimate to throw out any kind of expectation that we will have a protection of public interest, speech, uh, just because it's difficult to do so. Um, and and that comes also, I, I wondered about the discursive remedies discussion and what you have suggested, Andrew, um, this idea um, that, as I read it, what you were saying, Gavin, is that this is given too much, uh, this idea of like, corrections and retractions is given too much leeway to defendants. Was that, was that your... No, your no, 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 I th- no, I mean, I, I was agreeing completely with Andrew on that. I think there, I think that's where we should be going and we should be much more, you know, innovative and creative and, and encouraging those, which is kind of what everyone wants, you know. Newspapers don't want lengthy, enormously costly proceedings and claimants don't always want loads of damages. They want this very damaging insinuation about them that, you know, to, to be to be very quickly corrected. That that, you know, and then and then they're kind of happy. Most people aren't actually after, you know, protracted legal proceedings and, and with the hope of getting tens of thousands of pounds of damages at the end of it, although a few people may be. I do, I do think so. I mean, I absolutely think, by the way, that we, we, we need strong protection for public interest journalism. We absolutely do. So libel law was, you know, was, was, was used to shut down, as we all know, you know, things that needed to be aired over and over and over again. So that it's very, very important. I just think if you want, or I think the narrow point I was trying to make is that if you actually want it to include some requirements, but a flexible, you know, requirement, and also one that can be applied to non-professional journalists, which I agree is an important feature of Section 4, whereas Reynolds was heavily, almost exclusively kind of aimed at professional journalists. So if you want a kind of broader defence like that, I just think if you want to have some requirement that they must have made a reasonable attempt to verify the allegations, then there's just a clearer way of saying that. I just think that, the you know, 4.1b is just a really convoluted indirect way. And the other point I wanted to add is it's, it's almost willfully confusing. So subsection 6 of section 4 says the common law defence known as the Reynolds defence is abolished. And then as as... As Andrew noted in his article in the, in the Modern Law Review, the explanatory notes to the Act helpfully say the new defence, Section 4, is based on and is intended essentially to codify the common law defence, while the current case law would constitute a helpful, albeit not binding, guide to interpreting how the new statutory defence should be applied, which I just think is... So we're abolishing a defence, but actually we're also codifying it at the same time, and the case law is helpful, but it's not binding. I mean... Well- 
one of the things it does. One of the setting out to confuse everyone with with that. I mean, great if it's turned out to help a lot, but it's almost like they did the damnedest to make sure that it wouldn't help. But maybe maybe it's the explanatory notes here because one of the things that came out in the case law is that the defence can't be equipped with the Reynolds defence that it's got rid of that baggage of the qualified privilege. And, and, you know, it's worthy in that sense to distinguish it and, and to maybe abolish the Reynolds defence for that for that alone. Well, yes, abolish the Reynolds defence and don't have that explanatory note. But then, if you want to have responsible journalism, you know, maybe you don't want to have responsible journalism. Maybe you just want to say, if, if the topic is important enough, it doesn't matter. Don't make any attempt. Just put it out there. I don't think that's what we want, and I don't think that you can actually do that under Article 8. But so assuming that you do want some requirement, but not an, not an overly onerous one, not judges dictating to journalists how they do their jobs, but just a, re, a sort of reasonable journalist test, then just say that. I just, I just, I just don't, I just, I don't know why section four, the wording was used. And I just don't think it's a helpful way of getting it. It's just too indirect. But section four one b does actually explicitly say reasonable, and we know reasonable that means belief reasonable that it's in belief. public interest. Reasonable, yeah, reasonable belief. belief, not. Yeah. So, so otherwise, you... yeah. the distinction here, of course, is between the reasonable belief that it's in the in the public interest, and for want of a better term, reasonable conduct. So the yes. behaviour of the behaviour of the journalist or the blogger or the tweeter does not itself have to be in any way reasonable. In fact, it, it can be. No. Uh, it can be. Ex- it can be exceptionally unreasonable. But it's the belief regarding the public interest that's the turning point. Yes. Now, again, you know that's something that maybe reflects a move away from some of the the policy aspect of Reynolds. That's always difficult talking about the policy aspect of a judicial decision designed to give effect to human rights standards. But at its best, what Reynolds and its treatment in the common law world seeks to do is to promote responsibility in media and to reward a high quality approach whether that be you know putting something on the front page of a long established sunday newspaper or an investigative blogger doing a doing doing a tell-all and that's why for instance you know when we talk about things like uh, discursive remedies which i'm a strong supporter of um we run the risk sometimes of of taking on board a press narrative around regulation i mean we know that investigative journalism thrives in the audiovisual media sector, despite rights of reply being there as a matter of statute in many EU member states, we see the role of Ofcom. And I know, you know I've often been critical of Ofcom as a as a regulator for various uh, ways, and it does have a different role because of its license awarding um, uh, authority. But we see many people who are unhappy at their treatment in the audiovisual media being quite satisfied with what you would think of as a discursive process through the broadcast complaints mechanism. And we see in other areas attempts to try and take the best of audiovisual and electronic media regulation and finding a way to make that work for video sharing platforms or video on demand services and so on. So there, there was that nugget in, in Reynolds that actually you know, encouraged us to think about the links between private law and media regulation in a more explicit way. Section 4 kind of cuts off that and brings it back to perhaps a more conventional human rights narrative, which is extremely important in terms of press freedom, but doesn't necessarily get that um, responsibility and standards conversation going in a way which uh, all of us have touched on in 
uh, various aspects so far in this discussion. Yeah, I, I agree it would be somewhat submerged within Section 4, you know, because of the language it is used. But the way in which it's interpreted um, is ultimately to say that a journalist or somebody uh, in that position, um, you know, where they're, they're engaged in what you might describe as like proper investigation and proper journalism, could not hold a reasonable belief that publication would be in the public interest if they hadn't gone through the process of vouchsafing the, the, the accuracy of their allegations you know, by, by dint of um, standing up the story by, by, through proper journalistic conduct. So are you, you're saying that, that 401B suffices then to protect responsibility? Well, look, look, the debate was you always... You read that in, that's the point. Yeah, the, the, the debate was, I mean, look, the new version of Section 4 was introduced effectively at the behest of the libel reform campaigners who were hoping that it would be interpreted in a manner equivalent to New York Times and Sullivan. So that essentially, if you were writing about a matter of public interest, um, then you'd be effectively ab- absolved from um, potential liability unless... The other side could prove that you'd acted with malice, i.e., like a reckless disregard for the, the truth or falsity of what you're publishing. Yeah. So, I mean, whenever this was introduced, I mean, immediately various people spotted that that's where that defense was going, and therefore made various representations through various different devices to ensure that the government offered a pepper and heart statement to the effect that no, this was not intended to be an equivalent to New York Times and Sullivan. It was intended to be, you know, a, a statutory version of Reynolds. You know. Now, hence, that's why it's interesting what's happened in New, New South Wales because they you know, don't have the, the constitutional framework. They have to make that very explicit, and that's what they've done. Now, there's still then a question about whether that's how it will ultimately be interpreted by the courts. And like my understanding is that the courts, by and large, you know, have, have insisted upon that in cases involving journalism. Now, it might be that a door is opened by you know, particular um, paragraphs in Seraphine and Malkovitz. Um, uh, you know, to, to an expansion of this defence. And it was noteworthy that one of the counsel um, who was arguing that case took from the judgment the idea that this had been expanded to become something more like um, a, a generic um, public interest or public figure defence as we see in the United States, which I didn't see there. But, I mean, the door appears to be open for future um, counsel to... I mean, that, uh, in, uh, in- I think that's really interesting, and Andrew reminding us kind of of the of the background because the 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 government was under huge pressure from the libel reform campaign and the press, and they were also themselves rather foolishly kind of going around saying how terrible English libel law was and saying this was a huge change when in fact it was actually a series of very very modest changes. So they've kind of painted themselves into a bit of a rhetorical corner. And Section Four was a fudge. So Section Four was designed to make it look to the libel reform campaign, look, you might get a really big, bold change, and then a quiet pepper and heart same expansion notes. No, 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 don't worry, it'll be fine. It's really just going to be Reynolds. So why would you adopt what was always a fudge that was designed to almost give an impression of something that was of a much bigger change than it really was, with the experts knowing, aha, but they'll, don't worry, they'll read in Article 8 stuff and they'll read in Reynolds-type stuff to mean that really you have to have responsible journalism, even though it doesn't say that. Just say it. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. If the whole point is is clarity and giving journalists a toolkit and they can just sit down and read it, which actually I think is one good thing about Section 3. You know, there's, there's some details I don't like about Section 3, but at least it says these are the three things instead of this really complicated case law that you had. You know, so that's great. You know, if I was a journalist on some little small publication with no lawyers and no insurance, you know, and I just wanted to be able to quickly look at it, I would love Section 3 compared to the case law, but I just think Section 4 is not good in that way. I just, you know, if just write down clearly what you want the standard to be and put it out there. Don't have it having to be read in by and argued over by appellate courts for several years before you figure out what it finally means and how much it's changed Reynolds. 
And Gavin's point there is very important um, that we, in the Northern Irish context, um, because although I can see the clear arguments in terms of the smaller scale and consistency and the uncertainty and risk that arises out of, of varying standards, the, 20, the 2013 Act was not adopted in Northern Ireland at the time of its passage. And that is now that is now history. Andrew Scott's report um, identified many aspects of it, but made a number of recommendations for, for change. The Scottish legislation in various regards goes further as well. Um, and so the debate in Northern Ireland will need not to be focused upon um, the copying and pasting of legislation that was very much a product of its time. Aside from our earlier discussion around technology, you know, 2013 was that culmination of a long-standing libel reform campaign and the kind of the fallout of the press standards and regulation agenda. And the government of the day was facing various pressures uh, in order of what was in and what wasn't in the legislation. But I'm not sure the UK government would make all the same judgment calls today if it was doing libel reform. I'm certain the government in the Republic of Ireland, which is facing into this again, will, will be able to benefit from changes on that. So Northern Ireland, although it will want to maintain some consistency given its common law legal system and given the small scale of the media, um, will need to look uh, carefully at these, uh, at these provisions, separated from some of the pressures that were exercised in the parliamentary debate in 2013, which are simply not present in the same fashion as they were then. And what's interesting is that Scotland, I mean, Scotland, as I understand, considering that they are at this stage now of, you know, final amendment stage, they have largely adopted, I mean, section four, they've gone for section four, section one, they've more or less gone for, and they've heard all of these objections and they still see that this is essential for protecting free speech. Um, and, and even in this, this, this context today, that, that they're still going ahead with that. Um, but I think you're, you're right. There's definitely um, complexities there. I wanted to just mention uh, two things. Is First of all, the case of Doyle Smith. And reading Doyle Smith, you know, what you see is actually this 4-1-B and the reasonable. It does, as you suggest, Gavin, it really comes out that it is a requirement of responsibility. But then if you look at Sarah Finn, and responsibility was seen as going too far. In Seraphine. So it seems that it it's almost like somewhere between reasonableness and responsibilities where you have it, and then you don't get the language <laughs> in order to, to do that. But I mean, if, if 4B even said the defendant reasonably believed that, that, you know, he had acted responsibly in publishing the statement, so that, that takes you back a bit from, I get the idea that you want something that isn't the courts kind of just themselves deciding what is responsible journalism because, you know, that they need, they need to, they, you know, they're not experts in the area and they're not acquainted with kind of, you know, the pressures of modern newsrooms and all that. I get that. It's just that the wording is not very helpful for that. If you had the defendant's reasonable belief that he'd acted responsibly in publishing the statement, fine. Yeah, at, at least that'd be closer to what you want and it, and it, it helps take you back from the courts deciding themselves what is responsible journalism and kind of, you know, a sort of reasonable journalism standard instead. I think I think that would be fine. It's just reasonable belief in public interest. You then have to say, ah, you could only have that reasonable belief if you also reasonably, if you'd acted responsibly, because it's not in the public interest to publish. <laughs> you see what I mean? There's just an extra stage of reasoning that isn't in the wording of the legislation that has to be kind of added in, partly from the common law and partly from, art, you know, from Article 8 to sort of get you to what it actually means. And even then you're hovering somewhere 
somewhere between a responsible journalism test and a, and a, and a reasonable belief in responsible journalism or a reasonable belief in public interest that can only be produced by responsible journalism. So I just, I imagine the courts are going to go back and forth on this and it'll depend a bit on the facts of the case as it always does and they get to the result that they want, as we all know. But yeah, I, just, I mean, even with, even with, the, the, the cases and the way they've gone about it slightly differently suggests to me that it's not it's not a very clear thing for the courts to, to, to have to grapple with. Yeah. I, I want to talk a little bit about discursive remedies before we talk about Section 1. Um, did this, and we touched on this already, discursive remedies, and that was really central to your report, Andrew, in 2016. And what from the discussion there, it, it was a little bit like... I get the impression a little bit that the retractions and corrections is maybe there for defendants. And this it's coupled, isn't it, with this idea that, that there has to be a repeal of the single meaning rule. And is, the, is that repeal of the single meaning rule as being as is, 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 is a balancing out of that and is seen as giving something to claimants and making it easier to bring claims in, in that sense? Is that how you envisage it? Yeah, so, I mean, in general terms, the, the, the idea was to try and sort of narrow down the issues very quickly so that only core disputes ever went anywhere near the court, okay? So as you say, the, the, the basic um, uh, proposal was to, A, withdraw the single meaning rule, um, and B, provide for a jurisdictional bar to actions being brought if um, a, a retraction or correction had been introduced promptly and um, prominently, okay. So the idea would be that you know where there was sort of ambiguity of meaning, um, any um, any sort of misinterpretation by the claimant or and potentially by other other people who hear the statement would be quickly um, addressed, such that if there remained a dispute, that could go on into the legal process, and if it, uh, if the dispute was um, uh, resolved on that on that account, then that would be the end of the story. Okay, um, I mean it was very interesting at the time um, that I mean I expected this to be uh, um, received as being far too generous to defendants. You know that that claimants would effectively be frustrated in their desire to um, to seek um, you know a remedy and damages, and um, that the the policy objection would, would come from that side. In fact, um, the, the 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 complaint about it came very much more powerfully from the media side. Um, and we were presented with uh, a, a vast array of different arguments as to why this wouldn't work, uh, was inappropriate in concept and in, inherently undesirable. To my mind, this all boiled down to the um, the fact that the media didn't want to have to uh, correct or retract um, you know, minor errors every time they arose. And that was essentially because you know, these, these minor errors arise all the time in every publication. You know? So their concern was the risk of um, you know, death by a thousand cuts, you know. I mean, they much preferred the the potential to defend themselves in the one nuclear action that ever reached the court under, you know, traditional defamation law. I mean, I think there's been some amelioration in that perspective from the media. I think they, they perhaps, or or people who I've spoken to from within the media, I think they maybe understand the, the premise a little bit better now than they did um, in 2015, 2016. But it's still there. I mean, what, what this uh, would require would, would be ultimately a sort of shifting in the underpinning culture of, of defamation law, you know, the, the high stakes casino royale version of uh, reputation management. But is, is it hard to discount those media objections, though, considering the fact that it's coupled with this repeal of the single meaning rule? Because is there a chance that this repeal of the single meaning rule essentially makes it easier to claim 
uh, because the claimant doesn't. I mean that that determination of the single meaning rule and whether a reasonable under, uh, reader would understand it as that and all the qualifications of a reasonable reader that provided some bar didn't it to claimants so in a, in, in essence and it's it's re- we have to be really careful about these discursive remedies and there has to be an exact balance struck in that sense and if we get media uh, representatives saying well we're not sure about this retractions and corrections thing because maybe that's putting too much of a burden on us then we really need to take that on board and 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 you know investigate that and consider it before we we suggest these discursive remedies gavin you want to say something I mean, just on this, on, on single meaning, I, I, I mean, I get the concern from, from the media. I mean, two two things. So one, as I understand it, determining the meaning can often be one of the most costly parts that involves these these uh, preliminary hearings that, that, that were wrangling over the possible meanings of words that, you know, go on and on and on, and, and is a huge multiplier of legal costs. So I think one, one reason for get, getting rid of it is that, is that you always have to balance out what you might purely want in terms of law, but what impact it actually has in terms of in terms of costs and you know the, the chilling effect that it has upon both sides. And the other thing is just, I mean, provided you take section one seriously, which we're going we're, we're gonna to come on to, but that, that it actually has to be a, you know, a really damaging insinuation, then they wouldn't have to correct minor errors. So they'd, they'd only have to correct seriously defamatory things that they'd said that actually they realised weren't true, or, or at least, you know, that people were start people were reading it you know a large amount of people were reading it that way which you know and perhaps perhaps the claimant i don't know how this could work but you know it, it nowadays on twitter it's very easy to see how people are reading stuff so you know a claimant could easily if they had to produce evidence that there was a body of readers who were reading this defamatory insinuation in in whatever the allegation was you know if that was necessary that that would be quite easy to do just a quick scour of twitter so i i think that provided Provided that, you know, and I think Section 1 has been a really one of the most important reforms, actually, and I think it's turned out to, to again, perhaps have had more effect than, than we thought it might. Um, and, you know, it has raised the bar, and I think that's good, because I think it should be only quite serious things that, you know, get anywhere near court. But if that's read, then then the discurs- with, with, with the discursive remedies of correcting things swiftly, then the media should be less worried, because while they may make a number of minor errors in, in, in many stories, hopefully they don't make a number of minor errors that are seriously defamatory. <laughs> In, in many stories that they publish, or if they do, then they should correct them. But then doesn't that require some determination and investigation into what actually qualifies as serious at some degree, you know, and that it imposes an obligation on them to investigate what would be serious? Or are you suggesting that what's serious is, should be immediately obvious? Well, I think I think I mean you know there's it can be obvious in terms of the nature of the allegation. I think I think the courts have moved under Section One to suggesting you need to show some start to show some form of damage. I mean not dam- not not damage in the in the sense you'd have to show finally, but some indication that people are believing this and that, that it's changing their mind about you, as opposed to just showing the type of insinuation that it is. But I must admit I haven't read that case law in detail. I don't, I don't know. If the rest of you want to comment on that, how Section One's been interpreted, I know we're sort of half moving towards it, but well, yeah, let's talk about Section One. I mean, certainly that is something that we haven't covered so far, and it's certainly that was a contentious issue, as I understand it, for Scotland. It's been a contentious issue in the courts, and it was only really resolved, and perhaps say some would say unsatisfactorily, with the Le Show judgment in the Supreme Court in two thousand and nineteen. I mean, in 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 your report, Andrew, in two thousand and sixteen. It was kind of like section one, yes, but some reservations about that. 
Um, how do you feel about it now then? Uh, well, I think my reservations now would be much, much stronger, <laughs> I have to say. Um, I mean, look, w- what the serious harm test was in- introduced to try and do was to, to work as a sort of early um, disruptor to, you know, obviously trivial cases and also like transparently abusive cases. So um, very quickly, the expectation was that these these hearings would be um, take place on a preliminary basis and stupid or wrongful cases would be, would be quickly dispensed with. Um, there was always a question about whether that was necessary because the common law, um, in part as influenced by, by Article 8, had, had already introduced sort of thresholds of seriousness into this area, which effectively served that purpose. Um, but what then happened was that um, uh, in the sort of early stages of the Lachaud litigation in the High Court, um, Section 1 was interpreted as as, um, as requiring the provision of evidence as to the degree of harm that had been suffered. Okay, um, And and that, that changed the ballgame, you know, because, um, you know, all, all of a sudden, you know, uh, the, the capacity for a claimant to bring a, a, a case was going to be, have to jump a really quite significant additional hurdle. Now, whenever I actually wrote this report in 2016, we had had the Court of Appeal ruling, which reverted from that interpretation and said that evidence wouldn't be necessary, that seriousness could be inferred, and you know it's it's effectively just a, a, a reprising of the common law rule. Now, um, in addition, um, in the early stages of litigation in this area, there was a case called Cook against the Mirror Group newspapers, uh, in which um, the court held that uh, where um, a publisher had uh, had recognised the mistake and quickly. Um, you know, corrected it, maybe apologized for it, offered a retraction, and that would that would speak to the degree of seriousness. And so, to my mind, Section One, if it did nothing else above and beyond the common law, at least encouraged fair play, if you want, you know, and, and the type of responsibility post publication that we've been talking about. What happened thereafter, however, is that the Court of Appeal ruling in, in the show was overturned by the Supreme Court. So all of a sudden, we're back in the ballpark of having to provide really quite substantial evidence as to whether or not um, harm has been caused. And with that, um, we saw a shift in the location of that determination from the preliminary hearing to the substantive hearing. Right? So no longer is Section 1 providing this gateway test. It's not a substantive element of the determination of the, the um, libel case at the end point of proceedings. And, and really what it's become uh, has, has been no more, no less than a shifting of the burden of proof with regard to evidence or with regard to harm, sorry, you know. And so that's really the purpose that it's serving at, at the present time. Um, and I'm just not sure, uh, I, I'm sorry, the, the deep irony as well is that at the preliminary stage, courts in England have begun to rejuvenate the old common law tests to serve the same sort of um, purpose in getting rid of, of the stupid and transparently abusive cases. So, you know, sec, uh, Section 1 has become something entirely other than, than what it was intended to be, you know. Um, and th- in that context, then, you know, the... The barrier that it introduces uh, for claimants above and beyond what the common law previously did, I think, is is somewhat unconscionable because the nature of harm in this area is is very often entirely amorphous. You know. So. Can I just ask? I mean, it, it seems to me there's a kind of ambiguity in what. Yeah, sorry, I'd forgotten it was Le Show in what the Supreme Court held in Le Show because it's not to be regarded as. It's not section one is not to be regarded satisfied unless the unless the allegation has caused always likely to cause harm which is serious. So you don't have to show actual harm. You have to show either actual harm that's serious or the likelihood of harm that's serious. I'm just not sure what what likelihood of harm that's serious would how you would what, what kind of evidence is now being required or offered. 
Well, I think it's more factual rather before it was the more tendency that it would cause harm and they would draw some inferences there and now they're requiring some kind of facts, which is what you're talking about, Andrew. It's it's led to this complexity of the proceedings and things. But there is one, I mean, what you said is, you know, it's reverted back to the kind of Thornton days of substantive hearings and a lot of complexity around there. But there is one substantial difference there, which you touched upon, and that's that it shifted the burden of proof. And it shifted the burden of proof in making it harder for claimants to bring claims in this area. And that was the purpose of the 2013 Act. It was set to address the chilling effect of free speech. And again, this comes back to this idea that this is it's it's hard to get this thing right. It's hard for it to be perfect. But is this, the nece- is this where it necessarily just has to fall in terms of the, the burden of proof has to fall more on claimants in order to achieve this objective of addressing the chilling effect on free speech that defamation law was having? Well, I suppose uh, if that is, I mean, look, the, the location of the burden of proof is a, a, an open question. And, you know, uh, there is a reservation about, you know, the nature of harm, but then the courts can address that in some measure by inferring harm in serious cases. And so there, there are ways of managing the potential problem. But I almost sort of revert back to the type of complaint that Gavin has about Section 4. You know, if the aim is to shift the burden of proof, then don't go into this language of serious harm and you know the meaning of defamatory. Just say the burden of proof with regard to proof of harm lies upon the the, um, the, uh, the plaintiff, you know. Yeah, it shouldn't have to go to the Supreme Court to decide whether or not Section 1 was designed to <laughs> reverse the common law presumption. You know, that shouldn't have to be litigated all the way up to the Supreme Court. If you can make that clear in the words, then do so. I mean, I assume now, if Northern Ireland enacted this, they would do so in the knowledge that this is what it would mean. Because, you know, the Supreme Court having ruled on it, then we know that that's what it would mean. Well, again, the interesting thing is Scotland has considered all of these, and as I read it you know they've they've they're considering it post the show supreme court judgment and and they still think it's worthy and they have reflect that their adoption of section one reflects the 2013 act they see it as necessary there's been plenty of objections raised plenty of calls for replacing the word serious with actual there that has been rejected by scottish ministers as not doing enough really to protect free speech so uh it, it seems that again it's the imperfection of the language but it's it's seen as being necessary in order to achieve those objectives. But this is one situation where Northern Ireland will have to do something because, um, you know, if, 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 as it has been argued, you know, aspects of the new Section 1 and indeed even the discussion in the show, you know, the common law of England and Wales may have got there post-Thornton and various other cases, at least by a slower process, and maybe there's an acceleration there. The difficulty for Northern Ireland is there's even very limited authority as to the relevance of Thornton itself in Northern Ireland. It's really only a handful of cases. And all of the discussion that will now happen on the ba- on the basis of Section 1 in the show and so on, um, without something in Northern Ireland, may have very limited impact on the way in which defamation disputes are, are dealt with. So although, again, there can be arguments for and against an exact textual parallel, there is this kind of breach in the common law in a matter that was almost entirely dealt with by the common law. 
up to the 2013 Act. And that's different to other areas of defamation reform because much of the 2013 Act, you know, was maybe was playing around with areas that had already had statutory reform, whereas much of the debate around um, around harm and thresholds was a strong common law area. And, you know, Northern Ireland was already seeing sort of a slow process of adoption of that material. And now it's been further. So again, one can see why that's compelling in a Scottish context, particularly given the relevance of what's come from the from the Supreme Court. The other thing, however, to bear in mind is um, even if Section 1 has a major impact in weeding out claims, um, it still doesn't touch the other areas that a motivated claimant would want to deal with. And the Northern Irish courts have already seen, um, as, a, as in other parts of the United Kingdom, the, the, the triple or quadruple claim in order to get stuff taken down from social media. So you start with, this is, de- this is defamatory, and it's misuse of private information, and it might be a breach of copyright, and it's probably a couple of GDPR violations thrown in. Now, the defamation one tends to fall first, and I think that's the experience in England Wales as well, because of the way in which Section 1 um, may address the threshold, and because of other areas, the defamation one tends to get tends to get dumped and sometimes even conceded by the claimant that this is going to be the hardest case to make. But the GDPR point survives um, and often, you know, is where it's where it's going to be. So if if the goal of Section 1 is to do something even better than Jamil, etc., and have a proper filter for seriousness, it may achieve that in defamation, but it's not going to achieve it in the other areas where showing particular models of serious harm, let alone damage, is not really part of the, the picture. I mean, the, the goals of some of the other causes of action are not dependent upon a Section 1 mentality, um, and certainly, of course, don't have that textual dimension. So it's its effects might also be limited in that regard. And the, the lived experience of the Northern Irish um, media practitioners is they tend to start off with at, le- with at least three, if not more, causes of action for most claims uh, uh, nowadays. And the fact that they might be, you know, have a, a fair guess as to where the defamation one go doesn't tell you all that much about what's going to happen with the other causes of action. Okay, I'm just looking at the time here, and uh, I'm getting a message. We need we need to think about ten minutes for upload of the the data. <laughs> Data's getting us every time, but I just wanted to quickly address one last thing, um, and that's the suggestion about jury trials and abolition of jury trials. Andrew, you and I had talked about this before. Jury trials are seen as being important in Northern Ireland in a cultural historical context. Diplock courts and everything like that. Considering everything we've said about reducing complexity, reducing costs, is it not really valid for us to consider doing away with jury trials? Did they really add anything, you know, legitimacy to it, in fact, anyway? Well, I mean, yeah, so the the default position in England is that um, under Section 11, trials will be held without juries. There's still provision for a jury to be reintroduced, but the way in which... um, uh, the jurisprudence has developed. It's, it's quite difficult to understand the circumstances in which that would actually happen. So, whenever we were sort of transposing that thinking to the Northern Irish context, my my sort of starting point was to think that this would be an entirely unproblematic um, transposition. You know that that uh, because the existence of the jury um, and the requirement that the jury takes factual det- you know makes the factual determinations that actually drives a lot of complexity in the legal um, argument and uh, hence increases costs. And if cost was the major problem then removing the jury would be unproblematic. Uh, in, in the consultation with the Law Commission, though, we heard an awful lot of um, input from uh, Northern Irish practitioners and others who were suggesting that actually, no, the jury pr- 
and has performed historically and, and probably continues to perform a, a really important role in this respect in the particular context of Northern Ireland. And I heard that from um, you know, senior judges, senior lawyers, you know. I, I confess that, that um, you know, with an entirely pragmatic head on, um, I wasn't, you know, altogether persuaded. But I, I confess also that I, I probably just didn't understand the point fully, you know, and it may be that there's peculiarity to the Northern Irish experience which warrants the keeping of a jury. Okay. Well, I'm conscious now that we're right up on the time and i'd like to thank you all for joining us i think it's been a very helpful discussion and uh, thanks to the audience for listening thank you